0: but I never had any doubt or second guessing. So mentally that was like, hang on, I got this. Yeah, I'm I'm injured, everyone's injured, I'm losing weight, everyone's losing weight. We're all broken, we're all sleep deprived, food deprived. But it was from then on in, I just decided that unless I physically broke to the point where I couldn't go on all day, physically removed me from the course, that I was gonna get to the end of it and then just see how the chips fell.
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The
0: single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple
1: of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, Mm -hmm. but just angry. We could look down the Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere.
0: There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst women got and children. In going to I could never often. not go back. And and they
1: were my friends and scream scream they felt the toughest but She did say
0: you've changed. Soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes.
1: Dr. Dan Pronk is a former Special Forces officer. This combat doctor passed SAS selection, then deployed four times to Afghanistan working with both the Special Air Service Regiment and the 2nd Commando Regiment. We've covered his story before on this podcast, but Dan has recently released a book titled Average 70 Kilo Dickhead. Dan, welcome back to Life on the Line. Yeah, cheers, Alex. It's a real privilege to be back on the show, mate. So Dan, Average 70 Kilo Dickhead.
0: What is your new book about and why did you write it? The... Motivation to write that, I, I guess, when I came out of the army and spent a couple of years just recalibrating back to a normal civilian existence, I kind of on reflection realized that I'd had this really privileged opportunity to get some experiences that were were quite unique and a little bit left of center. And then I I became interested in trying to work out how I could share those experiences to try and potentially inspire or educate others. I started to get a bit of an interest in social media, which was something that we couldn't have profiles when we were within the special operations environment. And when I started putting a few of my lessons learned out there on social media, I got a quite a positive response. There was lots of messages, lots of interest in of course, the special forces world and then medicine within special forces was quite interesting to a lot of people, and people seemed to be drawing a bit of motivation from what I was doing, and and that feedback led me to want to do a bit more with it. And uh, I've always loved the creative process of writing and the, the challenge of it. It's a really, uh, to me, a stimulating type exercise. That whole process and cathartic in a way as well. Just organising my own thoughts, and so I started doing a bit of blogging. Wrote a arterial tourniquet A.E. book through. TACMED and putting out a bit of instructional material this sort of thing journal articles and then that all kind of led to me thinking well why don't i put it all together in a in a book and get that out there
1: well the way you've put this book together it's fast and it's furious and it's real quick series of lessons and anecdotes but i have to ask why that particular title
0: the title is obviously a little bit tongue-in-cheek, so I mean, it's it's designed to be a bit attention-grabbing and, and all the rest. There's a story behind it, which is explained in the first chapter, so I mean, that term average 70-kilo dickhead comes from a discussion that I had with a mate of mine in my early 20s when we were, were having a bit of a chat after we'd been at the gym, and so I mean, the story's in the book there. There is some some uh, story behind that, but the uh, I think to me it just summed up the part of the, the idea of the book is just that... I'm an average bloke. At the end of the day, the tools at my disposal are those that most of us have got. I had an average upbringing. I'm an average, probably below average height and and weigh around the the 70 kilo mark. Uh, So, I mean, it, it just was basically a bit bit tongue in cheek, bit attention grabbing, but the underpinnings are that I am an average 70 kilo dickhead. However, I've managed to have this experience, hang out with these guys, do this, go there and, and done some stuff that many would consider above average. So what I wanted to break down was the how I did that. And that's the idea of all these lessons learned, the various chapters of the book are just snapshots about how I managed to achieve something that might have been slightly above average. and And it's just to try and bridge that gap that I suspect a lot of people have between where they're at currently in their lives and then where they want to be. And they may not have that framework to get there. And so I wanted to break it down as to how myself as an average 70 kilo dickhead managed to do a couple of things that were slightly above average.
1: Let's move on to a couple of specific anecdotes you bring up in the book. In It's Not the Critic Who Counts, that careers officer you deal with is quite
0: memorable. Yeah, look, it is. And I I mean, I feel, I feel somewhat bad now because that bloke's actually a very nice guy. And I I subsequently came to know him and touch base with him periodically throughout my career. And he he actually rose up and and became a very uh, high ranking army officer. And so I feel bad about, I hope it doesn't come across that I'm beating up on that guy. And I hope to put across a fairly balanced assessment of that interaction from my perspective and his, And, and obviously what I'm portraying most in the book is my perception of that interaction but I can certainly see his I mean for the listener who hasn't uh, (laughs) heard that story basically when I was brand new into uniform I'd done my medical degree popped out of that and I was at my first posted army unit and at this stage I was hell-bent on being in special forces I'd been training for a lot of years towards that objective and wanting to do SAS selection I sat down with his career advisor when I was six months into my first army post and told him that quite confidently and, and he laughed In my face, and at the time, I mean, it was humiliating. It was, I was uh, devastated, to be honest. But as I said, I can see it from a balanced perspective. I see it from his angle. He's got this brand new bloke, fresh into the army, and a doctor of all people sitting there telling him he wants to go to the SAS, and and so for him, that that would seem a tall order and a sort of a relatively unrealistic goal. So I get it from his perspective. But from my perspective, I was already quite invested in that goal. And so this guy who kind of held the keys to my career to a certain degree, laughing at at what I'd told him was really uh, demoralizing at the time. But when I went away and processed that at that stage, I was already fairly invested in that goal. And it was a bit of a fundamental moment because that really was a, a point where it solidified my resolve to pass selection. And, and it was out of spite. So, I mean, it was a, a negative sort of motivator to go and do this but it really gave me fuel to every time I was sort of struggling with training or feeling a bit tired or not wanting to train I'd reflect on that and think well you know what I'm going to show you mate and like as I said I don't know that that's the best way to motivate yourself but at the time it worked really well and with hindsight I mean I've got a lot of gratitude towards that career advisor because looking back that was a real fundamental point in strengthening my resolve and kind of supercharging my motivation. So I think I I should thank him more than anything.
1: You make a good point there that you can see his perspective on that encounter as well. And that is typical of the book in that you clearly document your thought process at the time and your emotional response at the time, but you then also you give the real-time account and then you apply hindsight to it, which allows the maximum learning there. In those later encounters with the career advisor that you said you had did he remember you and did you feel a sense of sort of vindication or did he acknowledge okay, you've impressed me or exceeded expectations or anything like that?
0: No, look, I mean, my interactions since that time were often very fleeting and I, I never was directly under his command or anything along those lines. So we just sort of tracked one another's careers as, as we went along, but never had the opportunity to sit down. And certainly I've not had the chance to sit down and kind of debrief about that experience. It was all those years ago. Now I'd, I would actually love to, to be honest, and buy the bloke a beer and say, hey, thanks, because he, he would have he had no Idea that uh, he was so fundamental to my thought processes when I was training up for selection. So, yeah, I mean, I, I never had the opportunity to have any in depth conversations or recognize, you know, one another's achievements as we both moved through our army careers. So, hopefully, that day will come. Don't leave any
1: rounds in the magazine. In this chapter, you recount a particular moment on the SAS selection course in the happy wanderer phase.
0: That was a really pivotal moment as well in that 3 week course i mean that that 3 weeks is a Uh, I mean it's a a life-changing experience. Legendary as well. (laughs) Well yeah look I mean certainly I think there's a lot of kind of aura that surrounds the uh, SAS Carter course be it the British variant or the Australian variant any selection process I think's got that aura surrounding it but I'd gone into it fairly uh, as I said before mentally focused and my resolve was strengthened I was determined to get to the end of that course come hell or high water and and I found that that mental kind of fortitude stayed with me and there wasn't a moment up until this point that i discuss in the book where i experienced any mental uh, weakness basically and any negativity thinking oh geez i you know maybe i can't do this and so this moment came must have been about 15 days into the course so over halfway and and basically we were coming towards the end of a five-day individual navigation exercise where we'd sort of been logging we were out by ourselves in the Stirling ranges in southern western australia it was winter and it was cold but it was great we were being left alone you were by yourself fundamentally 24 hours a day and, and you just had to set your own pace and just stomp around and up and down mountains to checkpoints and then you'd get your next checkpoint and it was on my last day of this activity and we had no idea how many kilometers we had to cover, how many checkpoints we had to hit. They didn't tell us, which is part of the process. You need to be able to motivate yourself without knowing what the goal is and and just be able to have that self-discipline to keep pushing when you're not sure what your actual objective is. And I was coming up to my very last checkpoint. I'd been stumping all day. I I knew in my mind that the, the maths didn't work out, that I was unlikely to get to the top of this mountain that the checkpoint was on before it went dark. We weren't allowed to move after dark and I was fairly I'd started to lose a lot of weight I had a a leg injury that was giving me grief and just as I was stomping towards the base of this mountain it was getting towards dusk and I'd mentally resigned myself to the fact that I was not going to try and get to the top and get to my checkpoint in the back of my head that was my fifth checkpoint that uh, that I was moving towards in the back of my head I had this idea that we needed five checkpoints I wasn't sure no one was I thought, look, I'm done, I'm injured, I'm tired, I'm losing weight, I'm just going to camp at the bottom of this mountain and then get the the pickup the next day and... and, you know, if I needed five and I didn't get there, so be it. So it was the first time where I was kind of mentally defeated. And as I was moving towards the base of this mountain up the road that led there, another candidate came charging up behind me, and he had the same end checkpoint. And so he sort of came up alongside me, and, and uh, actually he scared the life out of me, to be honest. I was in a world of my own, but and we we had a quick chat, and this guy's attitude was just so positive, like he was the same. This was his final checkpoint. He acknowledged that he wasn't going to get to it before dark, but unlike me. He was, well, you know, bugger it. I've come this far. I'm going to charge for that checkpoint. Yeah, sure. I'll get there after dark, but I'm going to get there. And he was just so mentally strong. And, and so I had this interaction with this guy. We got to the base of the climb and, and he encouraged me to come with him. But at that stage, I was still in that defeated phase. And, and I, I said, no, nah, let him go. You know, wished him the best of luck. He charged off up the hill. I sat down, dropped my pack and started looking for somewhere to camp. And and then I kind of had this moment of mindfulness. I guess it was where I I sat there and I realized, hang on a sec, I've invested years into this goal. My final checkpoint's just there, albeit uphill, it was about a kilometre away. Sure, I won't hit it before dark, however – Uh, I'd be better off getting up, charging up there, hitting that checkpoint and then getting in trouble for moving after dark rather than sitting here and and potentially run the risk of of needing that fifth checkpoint, not getting it and getting kicked off the course. And so it was this realisation in that point in time that I was quitting on my dream, that this was completely within my control to influence. And so got up, threw my pack on and uh, basically raced up the hill as quickly as I could and and got to the checkpoint at the top there well after dark and, As it turned out, it was the DS who was at the checkpoint was Ben Robert smith and so I sort of stood off for a bit and had a look, and and here's this you know, two-metre-tall SAS soldier. I'm thinking, gee, so I really want to go up and run the risk (laughs) of getting a beasting from RS. But as it turned out, I I went over and checked in, and and, uh, he didn't question any of it, so he radioed me in, and the next day I was still on the course and and then got to the end and, and finished it. But to this day, I don't know whether I needed that fifth checkpoint. I don't know whether I needed those extra kilometers or not however i'm so glad i did that because i'm that mentally that was a a turning point within the selection course that from then on and the course got harder from there it really intensifies in the last five days but i never had any doubt or second guessing so mentally that was like hang on i got this yeah i'm I'm injured everyone's injured i'm losing weight everyone's losing weight we're all broken we're all sleep deprived food deprived but it was from then on in i just I decided that unless I physically broke to the point where I couldn't go on or they physically removed me from the course, that I was going to get to the end of it and then just see how the chips fell.
1: There's a lot of fascinating what-ifs there, such as what if you didn't hit the fifth checkpoint? What if Ben Roberts-Smith docked you points for clearly having moved through dark against the rules? But interesting as all those hypotheticals are, none of it matters because the lesson was there, that inner resolve. And it was great that you could actually draw strength from another person a teammate and then draw that energy internally
0: oh for sure and look i i think about that bloke a a bit to be honest and as i said it might have been that that was a fundamental point i mean it may have been i needed that fifth checkpoint i don't know i never i never asked like in my career subsequent to that i never asked any of the ds but i suspect if it wasn't for that guy coming past and sort of being so positive and encouraging me that I would have just sat there at the base of the hill and camped, I don't know, maybe I would have sat there and reflected and got up and gone anyway, but certainly he was key to me sitting there and thinking geez you know he's doing it why, why aren't I and I'm giving up on my dream and, and he actually he got to the end of the course so I did get the chance at the end of the course to bail him up and say geez thanks for that man I, I don't know that I would have gone but unfortunately he didn't get picked up for further service so he was one of the unfortunate few that, that gets to the end of the course but then is considered not suitable but so I didn't track his career from then but I, I did get the opportunity to to thank him and let him know, know in no uncertain terms that, that he was key to me cracking on there. And, and that might've been key to me being able to continue down the pathway I went. Let's
1: move on to recalibrating the suck meter. <laughs> so you've spoken on this podcast before with Sharon Mascalder about how your military career would later put experiences in civilian life into a new context along the lines of, it's really not that bad. But I thought we could revisit that notion as you've written here, the suck meter and specifically for the tail of two supercars
0: yeah look so I guess that suck meter and I mean that relates to this little novelty velcro patch that I had I think on my first trip of Afghanistan I can't even remember where I got it but basically it was a little gauge that had a had uh, down the bottom it said suck meter and it, it sort of had a green area an orange area and a red area and the needle was firmly in the red just kind of uh, suggesting that the, the suck meter was, was maxed out and I've found that years later, this, this concept of post-traumatic growth, it's well explained by that suck meter And you, you, post-traumatic growth is, is basically, in essence, you when someone experiences some fairly traumatic events and then manages to process that information, move past it, they can sometimes hit a point where... Not only do they get back to a a normal level of functioning and don't suffer any of that post-traumatic stress disorder type sequelae, but it can actually lead to a point where you are far more appreciative of life. You've you've had these very negative experiences and you now realize, hey, that's as bad as things can get. So you come back to what is a normal first world middle class existence and you start to realize, wow, this is fantastic when you've seen what it's like in a third world war zone, when you've seen kids killed, your mates uh, injured and killed, these kind of things, all of a sudden that is the red phase of your, the red section of your suck meter and you start to realize that day-to-day life in Australia, for instance, is actually in the green and so feel that I experienced this post-traumatic growth concept and coming to the the cars, I use that analogy in that chapter, anyone who's sort of followed me at all uh, on social media will know that I'm, I'm a massive car lover and particularly Italian. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, love them and I'm very, very fortunate to uh, have had the opportunity to own some nice cars uh, over the years and and got a couple at the moment. I've got an old Lamborghini that that I've uh, had for about 10 years now and when I came back from one of my more traumatic trips, I think in uh, 2011, I came back and I was a bit scrambled and for some reason I decided it was red at the time and and I decided it needed to be black. And so I spent my entire post-leave period, which was over Christmas, in my garage ripping this car apart sanding every panel back inside and out priming it and respraying it in black and so that took me 6 weeks to to do that which was the entirety of my leave I was working about 12 hours a day on this car and it was very like I guess with hindsight it was just me doing the the textbook sort of caveman thing and retreating into a cave and doing a process that occupied my thoughts and and just allowed me a lot of time to try and process what had gone on overseas and and that reintegrate Uh, and my wife god bless her she let this happen I mean we had young kids at the time and and I guess uh, she knew that that I just needed that space and so she's she's been fantastic throughout but she she let me do this and turn our garage into a workshop and anyway I I resprayed this car and it, it came up quite well and then at the last minute I thought I'd put some coats of clear paint over the top and, and so six weeks in I've resprayed it in black it's looking good I put the clear paint over the top of the black paint and it reacted and bubbled up and completely destroyed the paint job and so at that stage I was absolutely furious and for months I was just furious I was seething and, and kind of getting around and of course everyone at work thought it was hilarious that I'd spent my entire Christmas holidays doing this paintwork and, and demolished it No, I copped uh, no end slack for that flack I should say for that at work but and then as i kind of went along and processed the events that had happened overseas and, and got to a much better place and I, I can now in the car still has got the same paint job it's not being resprayed and, and and of course it hasn't got any better with time and so I but i can have a good good laugh now about about how i, I went and, and basically devalued this classic italian supercar but actually with hindsight it's been very liberating because it now means that the paint's already wrecked so i can leave the park wherever i want it doesn't matter if people <laughs> push a shopping trolley into it or ding it up or the kids open a car door onto it, which they do often. But the point being at the at the time that I ruined this paintwork, I was down in the dumps for months about it. Just every time I saw it, I was furious and I was kicking myself and I couldn't work out why it had happened. And it really was a big deal in my life. And, and then fast forward to just last year, I got my hands on this old classic ferrari and so i bought this thing as an investment i I spent a a bunch of time researching uh, this particular model of ferrari and i thought yep look i want to grab one of them stick it in a garage and hold on to it as an investment and so i I, um, hunted around spent months looking for the perfect one found it it was this low mileage uh, 1983 car that had, had been in storage in japan most of its life and, and then come out to australia being in collections and so i bought this thing then it took another couple of months to get it delivered down to where i'm living and i've got the storage facility all sorted and anyway so this thing arrives and it comes off the back of the car carrier it's a left-hand drive and i get it and it is pristine it's straight as an arrow the original paint works great it's got twenty seven thousand miles on the clock from new and it's uh it's it's exactly what i wanted so i got it delivered before work and so i get it and i drive it into the the uh, storage facility and didn't have it registered for driving because it was just going into storage so just had the sort of foreign theft type uh, sorry didn't have it registered or didn't have it insured for driving and uh anyway the what I wanted to achieve was just to put it in storage, lock the door, and then head off to work. And So as I'm trying to reverse parallel this thing into the, the storage facility, and I've always been rubbish at, at reverse paralleling cars, to be honest. That's uh, that's something I've never been good at to the point where, to, to digress, a couple of weeks ago, I was trying to back a trailer into our drive, and my wife was guiding me, and she actually said hey get out let me do this and and she did she reversed this trailer down straight back in so it's sort of it's it's not my strong suit but but back to the ferrari i was trying to back it in and and long story short i ended up just grinding the side of this car uh down the the edge of the, the garage door and gouging a big big ding out of the the door of this ferrari that had been straight as an arrow its entire life i owned it for 15 minutes and uh, and ripped the side out of it and so so coming back to the suck meter don't get me wrong that uh that, that sort of bumped me down into the orange for a day or two but unlike the the Lamborghini and the paint job all those years ago with with this I was able after a couple of days to say hey you know what this really ain't so bad if the worst thing that's happened in my week is that I've scratched the side of this classic ferrari that i've got that i was putting into storage because i've got a classic lamborghini in my home garage then life's probably not that bad and so it's it's just a this recalibration of the suck meter if you like this recalibration of what you see as a as a bad day that happens when you do experience those negative events, all that trauma, and then you get this post-traumatic growth. And so, you know, a bad day for me now has been recalibrated to, to some of the horrific events that I, I experienced in Afghanistan, uh, you know, kids getting injured and killed, my mates getting injured and killed, these sort of things. That's, that's now red on the suck meter for me. And then you come to it scratching your Ferrari that's really not that bad. And so it bumped me into the orange for a few days. And, and then, you know, within a week, I could have a good laugh about it. And one of these days I'll, I'll get a panel meter to sort it out. But, but yeah, so it's a, this post-traumatic growth, I think that the, the suck is a great analogy for it. You
1: spoke on this more extensively with Phil Hayes St. Clair on his Founder to Founder podcast. But these life lessons you're giving aren't just from your time in special operations or how special operations have impacted you in the civilian world back home, like with those cars. But looking at your life beyond the military, you've gone on to do a business degree, entrepreneurial work, Med Australia with Voodoo medic Jeremy Holder and others. So you're pulling wisdom not just from the military, but from all these walks of life.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, there was a significant void in my life when I left the Army. I'd gone from this high-paced job where I felt really validated. I, I felt that I was, by the end of my time in that role, that I was I was performing well in that role, and it was very rewarding for me, very stimulating. And then I, I popped out into civilian life, and it took me quite some time to find my feet there and then find things that would fill that void. And when I was looking to discharge from the Army, I knew that there was going to be a void. I didn't appreciate the magnitude of it, to be honest, but I knew I needed something there to have a focus. And so I enrolled in a Master of Business Administration and took on a full-time workload when I got out of the Army, so I'd have at least a focus, something structured in my life that that I would be able to have to do to occupy myself, but also to keep moving forward, keep progressing, uh, which is something I always Feel the need to do. Otherwise, I feel if I stagnate, I, I, uh, I struggle a little bit. So, did this MBA, and then that. Kind of really ignited this passion for entrepreneurship, and and as I started to get to the end of my MBA, my my very last subject was entrepreneurship, and I'd become interested in. I'd started a small company that was doing some tactical medical training for a couple of uh, niche elements, and Jez Holder, uh, who you just mentioned, so he had founded Tacmed Australia some years prior, and I'd had dealings with Tacmed. We used to buy stuff off them, and and I knew Jez and. That kind of morphed as it went along into me basically rolling my training company into TechMed Australia. So I bought into TechMed Australia and strengthened their training arm. And, and so the, the business side was kind of evolving. I'm doing this MBA. I'm doing entrepreneurship. And, and all the while, I couldn't help but notice the, the parallels between the mindset of a special operations soldier and an entrepreneur. They're fundamentally, the the psychology of it is incredibly similar. They're people who are relatively comfortable with risk and uncertainty and and these kind of things. And whether you're off in a small group doing a fairly specific targeting operation in special operations, or you're trying to build a small startup, which is very resource constrained and limited. And you've, you've got to work hard on that in a tight knit team and, and try and build that up, which is what TACMED was and some of the other uh, smaller entrepreneurial kind of ventures that I've been involved in. There's there's a lot of, I've found sort of surprisingly, that's that involvement in entrepreneurial startups and the excitement of that has been one of the closest things that I've found as a civilian that that replicates the stimulus of special operations. and It's a very different beast and it's not physical or there's not the adrenaline, but but just in terms of the psychological stimulation, I've found that that's a a great parallel and that risk and that uh, comfort with risk and then trying to, I guess, overcome what is fairly overwhelming odds to make a small business not only survive, but thrive. Is is once again a, a great parallel with special operations, small elements having a, a abnormally large effect on the battlefield. You parallel that to a small startup company trying to grow into something massive in the business world, and so yeah, that's been really fantastic. And and so some of the tales that I tell in that uh, in the book relate to my experiences with the entrepreneurial startups. Uh, as well and some of the lessons learned just in in my early days of that.
1: I want to step away from your book just for a moment to talk about some of your other writing actually because you also published an article recently about that transition from military to civilian world called Abandoning the Tribe and it went viral.
0: I was incredibly humbled by the response to that article and it it did exactly as I I had hoped and then some. The, The goal of that I guess I'd I'd fallen in a bit of a heat when I got out of the Army, and I think a lot of people do. And of course, a lot of people suffer with post-traumatic stress and and go down the the post-traumatic stress disorder, kind of, pathway which is is really tough but and I had a degree of trauma that I needed to process there was no question but as I went along I was convinced that there was something much more than that I thought that the trauma was a very small component and and as I tried to make sense of why I was struggling so much with my transition and a lot of it just didn't make sense on paper I'd popped out of this army job and I was fortunate enough to have a qualification that translated directly into civilian life. So as a, as a doctor, I could pop straight out into a job as a, a civilian doctor. My pay went up by a factor of three so I was earning more money than I I ever had in my life so you know financially I wasn't struggling I wasn't physically broken I hadn't been shot or blown up so I was physically intact I had a fantastic wife and kids my family unit was stable I was well supported so I mean everything was there and yet I was having this really terrible time I just really was not enjoying life and I started to just try and make sense of that. and I guess as a medical person, I've been programmed to think in an evidence-based fashion. and so I went looking for the social uh, psychological theories that underpin your self-esteem, your self-worth, your how you fit into society, how you, perceive your role in society and how that that feeds into your basically your fulfillment in life and started to look at some of the social identity theories a concept called identity fusion a thing called contingent self-esteem and basically worked out from a a psychological perspective the theory of why i was struggling and then that kind of led to a little bit of a framework as to well i was what was called self-actualized so within special operations I had all my mates there I I had self-esteem coming from the role it was exciting and stimulating I felt that I was contributing to uh, not only the the function of the unit but I was getting overseas and getting involved in some humanitarian stuff and patching people up helping out local nationals these sort of things so it was very for me it was a very fulfilling role and then when I got unplugged from that and went out to back into the civilian world I still had the base things covered like I, I had enough money I had a roof over my head I had food I had you know safety security I had a family unit but what I'd lost was that tight-knit group that I had done what's called identity fusion with like living in each other's pockets going and experiencing intense experiences together they were like family as well to me my military mates and 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 I'd lost that because I'd been unplugged from the unit and then I'd also lost that higher order stuff that gave me my self-esteem so basically I had what was known as contingent self-esteem where your or self-esteem in entirety is contingent on one life domain so it's linked to your performance in such such and such so maybe a professional athlete has contingent self-esteem that relies on them winning races or being in the olympic team and then when they get stripped away they fall in a heap and and i had the, the same thing my self-esteem was so wrapped up with my performance as a doctor within special operations that when i unplugged from that i didn't have anything else in my life really to draw self-esteem from and so looking at that, I could see that what I needed to do was find myself a new tribe. And I, I love this term tribe and I mean I'm I'm ripping that off from Sebastian Junger, who of course was the bloke that we think of when we use the word tribe as this group of military, and he he did his stuff for any listeners who aren't aware of it. So Sebastian Junger did the Restrepo documentary. He's done a fantastic TED talk. He's written a a book called Tribe, and it's all surrounding this same thing, that this bond that happens with particularly military people that go to war and have intense experiences, lose members, and then uncouple from that that support network. And so what I started to realize was that the way forward for me was to build a a new tribe in my new civilian world and then start building back up the infrastructure in my life so that i could draw self-esteem from my work and from other bits and pieces and and then that would then lead to a fulfilling life outside of the military so that the kind of if you're familiar with the maslow's hierarchy or maslow's triangle as a lot of people are that the top layers of that maslow's triangle had been knocked off when i got out of the army and i just needed to rebuild them and it, it took me a while to do that but uh eventually i I got engaged in a, a job at an emergency department up in Queensland, where I felt once again that I was learning again. I was moving forward, and and more importantly, I was I was contributing. I was helping. You know, I was helping people out. Occasionally, you'd you'd make a life or death difference to someone, and that's very rewarding. And so I slowly started to rebuild a new tribe with the, the doctors there, and then started to get a bit of self esteem back from the, the work that I was doing there, and and then the business stuff has played into that as well, and. So I've kind of rebuilt myself outside of the military to be a, a, a fulfilled person. And, and that's what's led to me kind of coming out of that slump that I had when I got out of the army and building it all back up.
1: And anyone listening, I encourage you to just Google Dan Pronk, abandoning the tribe, and you'll find the article. So Dan, back to the book. Do you think you're an average 70 kilo dickhead?
0: Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, I I can't lie to you, but 70 kilos probably down around my fighting weight, I, uh, I had blown out a little bit, but I'm getting that under control. I'm on a ketogenic diet now, so I'm getting back down. I was 72 this morning, but as I said earlier, obviously, that's that's tongue-in-cheek. It's attention-grabbing. The story's in the first chapter there. But the the point that I'm trying to get at there is fundamentally I'm that guy. I'm the average guy. I'm not a two-and-a-half-metre-tall super soldier. I'm, I'm not covered in muscle. I'm not significantly... You know, intelligent compared to the average populace. I went through school and, and I got B's and C's at school and I graduated with average grades that were good enough to just get me into something at uni, but certainly not anything like medicine or law or anything like that. And don't get me wrong, I'm not below average. I mean, I grew up in a middle class Australian family. I had a stable family unit. Mum and dad were together and, and my childhood was great. You know, it was normal. But what I'm trying to convey there is that there was nothing exceptional about me as a person as I went through life. I didn't have any sort of exceptional genetics or any uh, rich parents or that, that gave me this unbelievable opportunity that wasn't accessible to most people in society. The point that I'm trying to convey is that, that I've got the standard set of tools that, that everyone in society has, and the only thing that I think differentiated me from others who, who may not have reached their life goals it's just the the persistence and that's all it comes down to you know and you I think we lose sight of this in particular I think social media is particularly bad for this in that we get these snapshots in our feed a hundred times a day of these people doing amazing things you get a minute video on Instagram and you see someone doing something phenomenal and you kind of sit and you think geez that's that's incredible I could never do that but what you don't see is everything that that went into that. And special operations is another great example of this. We get these snapshots of these special operators doing remarkable stuff. It pops up on the news once in a while when things like the uh, operation Neptune Spear, the mission against Osama bin Laden, and you sort of see this and you think, "Geez, that's unbelievable! These guys are, are superhuman." And and what you don't see is everything that goes into that. It's like when we watch professional sport. You watch the we just finished watching the Australian Open and you see a guy play a game of tennis and at the end of it he gets handed a four million dollar check and you're like man that's incredible You just got paid four million bucks for an hour's work but they're not being paid for that one hour what they're being paid for is the lifetime of training that has gone into getting to that point that thousands and thousands of hours of training all the sweat blood tears that leads up to that i think what people lose sight of is that this stuff is achievable it just takes persistence and it takes time and it takes dedicated goal setting with rigid goals that are tangible that then get broken down into sub goals and you chip away at that day in day out week in week out year in year out and eventually you'll get there and and most people don't ever hit those goals because they don't have that persistence or determination. But for those who are really motivated, I, I think that the the average person can achieve remarkable things. However, that individual, you know, whatever they perceive as 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 their life goals, and it's all achievable. It's just a matter of getting started. And then as you go along, you start chipping away at those small sub goals. That starts to build confidence that you can achieve it. You start to see yourself moving towards the bigger goal. You hit that goal and. then you think, well, hang on, I've done that. What's next? And so I've found in my life that by chipping away starting to hit small goals that gave me confidence I, I, I looked further ahead and thought well maybe i can do that and maybe i can do that maybe i could be a doctor which was completely outside of my capability when i got out of school I, I was nowhere near it but then as i went along did a bit of uni started to get some academic confidence i eventually thought hey hang on a sec this is within range and went and set the entrance exam got a spot in med school did that and same with the the military thing got into the army had a look at special operations thought geez i'd, I'd love to do that, learned everything I could about it, trained for what, in the end, it took me seven years from when I first became aware of the special air service to when I got the chance to go on the course. And so that's, that's a long period of time. But I spent that entire time setting sub goals, bettering myself, strengthening myself mentally and physically so that by the time I turned up, I was able to be successful on that selection course. And so it's not a quick process, but it is achievable, I think, for the average person to achieve remarkable things. If you just have that persistence and and have that self-belief and get started, that's the key. I mean, getting started, don't sort of think about these things. Oh, geez, I'd love to set a tangible plan and just get started.
1: Well, Dan, you've just summed up the premise of the book. We've only touched on a few of the stories today. It's a fun read packed with some great lessons. So I encourage everyone listening to go check out a copy. Where can people buy it?
0: Yeah, cheers for that, Alex. So it's currently available on ebook, was the initial release. And so that's available through Amazon or all the other major ebook platforms. And as we speak, the uh, first run of print books is actually being printed. So it'll be available in hard copy by the time this gets released, I imagine. And I'll have a link on my Instagram account as to how to order the, the print copy. So that's Dan Pronk at Instagram. And I've also reported recorded the audio of it and that's all been processed and just sent off to be uploaded onto audible as well so all going to plan by the time uh, this podcast goes to where it'll be either on audible or very close to being released and so it's a ebook uh, physical and audible and i'll have the links to all of that on my instagram account
1: covering all fronts that's very exciting congratulations
0: yeah cheers for that no it's been a, a very fun process it's is sort of another thing that was just as a project very interesting to me to see hey how, how does this all happen and so it was good to step through those processes and hopefully it'll be the the first of uh, many that i put out in all three formats
1: well dan it's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast thanks for your time today
0: yeah cheers alex i really appreciate you having me back on the show mate thank you
1: Look up Dan's book and get yourself a copy for a fast and uplifting motivational read. If you want to hear more from Dan, go back to Season 2 of this podcast and listen to his two-part interview with Sharon Maskeldare, Number 31, Dr. Dan Pronk, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Dan appeared again on the podcast last October in the episode Voodoo Medics with Mark Donaldson, VC, Dr. Dan Pronk and Kristen Shorten about that documentary. And for more on Dan's endeavours post-military, besides what he spoke about with Sharon on this show, check out the Founder to Founder podcast. In each episode, serial entrepreneur Phil Hay St. Clair explores how experienced founders overcame challenges and mistakes to build great companies. It's the perfect podcast for someone looking to start their own side hustle, small business, or just begin their next great adventure. His chat with Dan is episode number 86. Find this podcast on social media at Life on the Line podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at L-O-T-L pod on Twitter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.